Hey everyone, uh, my name is Nick, I'm the CEO of DOC and welcome to Identity3, a podcast all about digital identity and Web3. And I'm delighted to be joined today by David Palmer, uh, working both uh, for PeerPoint and Vodafone. David, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Uh, very nice, uh, Francesco. Nice to be on the, on the podcast. It's been a long time in the making, uh, but, but really excited to be here. Great. And David, you and I met for the first time at our Future Identity Festival in London just, just a few weeks back. And so I know you're eternally doing conferences and, and things like that. So I really appreciate taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us today. Um, without further ado, can you please introduce yourself and what is your role at Vodafone? Um, so, so my name is, uh, as you said, David Palmer. I've, I've, uh, I, I'd like to consider myself a sort of innovator in the field of Web3 and uh, IoT. Um, my role at Vodafone is, is, is for that. So I've helped Vodafone in the exploration of Web3 and blockchain technologies, uh, more recently the Metaverse. And I've also, um, I'm also uh, the co-founder uh, and chief product officer of a new uh, venture uh, by Vodafone called PearPoint. Uh, and a platform there called the Digital Asset Broker. Um, so, that, so that used to um, be within uh, Vodafone, and it's now a, a, a sort of independent venture uh, owned by Vodafone and Sumitomo Corporation. It was interesting, I was saying to Francisco before we started, David, that when we speak to um, some of the uh, people from, from particularly large enterprises, and, and you've explained the difference in PearPoint and Vodafone, um, the language and the terminology that comes through both in your communications and that of Vodafone is much more Web3 centric than certainly other large corporates. And I wonder if that's down to your own background, maybe being a bit more Web3 centric than, than large enterprises. Is that correct? Yeah, yes and no. I mean, I think a lot of the enterprises, certainly the tel telecoms, uh, uh, the large telcos are uh, like Vodafone and others are, are on this journey to become technology companies, right? So. I think you've seen a lot of companies now uh, on the journey to become platform organizations, uh, to become uh, telecoms, or uh, to, to become technical organizations. Um, and, and of course, Web3 is a key technology in that, uh, in, in that journey. Uh, what got you first interested in digital identity? And what aspect, um, if there is an aspect specifically about digital identity that keeps you motivated to continue to work in the space today. I mean, digital identity and the phone and KYC are all linked, right? So, so, so I, I was aware of digital identity and its importance, um, you know, uh, from from you know just mainstream telecoms and the KYC and and the phone numbers and um, and, and a lot of work around that. Uh, but what what got me really interested was um, this this concept of of decentralized digital identity or. or, or and self-sovereign digital identity and some of the projects there which were really looking to create um, you know decentralized identifiers and they have a model where you have issuers and you can you can you know, you can you can basically verify uh, those issued credentials automatically and uh, for me that became very interesting because at the time I was looking at internet of things and really looking at okay how can you make a autonomous car um, you know, pay for parking or charging or a toll, um, and and and, and yeah, you know, the idea of having a, a, an identity which was decentralized to an extent, um, you know, which, which sort of makes the market, um, you, uh, you can you can get some interoperability there. But the idea of having a, an identity that was decentralized and had credentials that could be automatically verified uh, was very appealing. So we took that on. Um, 
and really came at it from a device uh, angle. So you, if you look at identity standards like EIDAS 2.0, which is a directive, I don't believe it's a mandate yet, uh, but it's looking at a European identity wallet. Uh, and the European identity wallet is, is basically saying that every organizational person can have a, a digital wallet, right, which holds their identity credentials. And of course, we've been very interested in taking that forward to IoT devices, right? And uh, very interested in in, in 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 the SIM as an identity credential, especially where you start looking at things like the metaverse and other online activities. We are we're increasingly going online. We're increasingly uh, increasing. We're increasingly doing more online, and I think that trend will continue. And the idea is then, how do you trace um, the online activity back to a person? So you're in the metaverse. You're a member of different uh, platforms there. You can have different personas there, but ultimately you need to trace it back to an organization or a person who has a legal jurist, uh, jurisdiction and where you can have recourse to legal um, legal systems. Um, so, so, so then we started looking at uh, not only device identity, but the phone number as part of that uh, key part of the, of the identity credential, which could be used in these digital environments. Yeah, and, and you spoke a lot there about um, Internet of Things. Of course, that's been uh, a buzzword that's existed for for a decade or more. I think I saw in one of your posts, although it's possibly a little bit older, I think there was 3 billion connected devices at that time. I think it's probably quite a lot more now. Um, what Can you tell me how all well that links into to what you're doing at PeerPoint and what, what would you say is the economy of things? That was something that you wrote about a little while ago. Could you tell us a little bit more about that, please? I think the prediction now is anywhere north of 30 billion I, IoT devices or connected devices in operation by 2030. Um, but these devices, um, if you dig a bit deeper, uh, you know, a significant amount of the data from these devices is not used. Um, and uh, not only is it not used, it's costing uh, a lot of money uh, for the device owners to to handle that data. Um, so, so, so uh, you know, very interested in you know, part of where PeerPoint came from was saying, okay, could we actually turn these 30 billion devices in 2030, or, or you know, however many billion devices now, could we turn them into an economy? Meaning, you know, could we create capabilities? Uh, for each of these devices to interact securely with each other? Uh, could we provide the capabilities for these devices to um, to, to uh, authenticate with each other um, across company lines, across ecosystems? And more importantly, once you've done that, could we create the, um, the capabilities and enablers for these devices to transact with each other? And that's where you get the economy of things where essentially you have devices that have interoperable identity passports, uh, that have uh, authentication, cryptographic authentication mechanisms, uh, and the uh, wallets and links to payment payment systems so that they can transact. And I think these things come together uh, to essentially turn these devices into discoverable economic agents um, and, uh, and with the ability to automate transactions. And, and that is the economy of things, uh, as we put it. Uh, but 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 there's another di there's another dimension to this now because um, as well as devices transacting, I, I think one of the new entrants this year uh, to, to 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 the landscape um, is is AI in a big way, generative AI and AI robots and AI data. Um, so not not only are we looking at an economy of things, but there's also an economy of AI which is also linked to the data that uh, IoT the devices produce and being able to have an identity for 
uh, AI, uh, AI entities uh, and AI bots uh, being able to, um, you know, to, to, to have some security and authentication of that will become very important um, as you go forwards. And I also think that there's another link between um, IoT devices, 30 billion devices in 2030 producing um, you know, huge amounts of data uh, going into uh, you know uh, going into AI large language models, I think will be uh, a source of um, transactions between devices and uh, AI ecosystems in the future. Yeah, and just to be clear as well, David, what we're talking about here when we talk about IoT devices, and we're talking about these devices working with each other autonomously. So really, there being you know almost no human involvement between them uh, and these kind of these devices working for our benefit. Correct. Um, yeah, it, certainly in the future, when you look at automotive, so there's a big, uh, a, a lot of excitement about in-car payments at the moment, and cars becoming intelligent, and cars becoming self-driving and autonomous in the future. Uh, but at the moment, um, you still have you know a owner, driver, user in the car. But the same technology can be used essentially where you're seeing a lot of the car manufacturers talking about the car paying, not the person, right? So you can still have you know a car paying for parking, paying for tolls, paying for road use. Um, you know, pay, paying for, for charging. Uh, but, but what we can also do is uh, link that device and its identity and its payment credentials to a person. Uh, so one example of that is a fleet company who has multiple drivers. Instead of trying to manage payment across the drivers, why not uh, enable the, 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 the fleet vehicle to pay and authenticate the, you know, many drivers to be able to use that uh, payment credential in, in the vehicle? So there's some practical examples where you can have autonomous uh, transactions from the device, uh, but also where you can link that device or pair it to a person and authenticate them. One other, this is a little bit left field, David, and actually one kind of novel concept I'd seen. I don't know, I suspect you might have come across it. Have you come across the notion of cars that own themselves? Yeah, yeah. So so, so that uh, that has been talked about for a while. So this is the car with its own P&L. Uh, yes. that would, uh, yeah, it's part of the shared mobility model. I mean, it, yeah, it, it links to another side. I mean, I think you, you can only have an economy of things, right? So, so there's a study by STL Partners, which is predicting that by 2030, there's a lot happening by 2030. I want to be around in 2030. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's right. but, but, but by 2030, there will be 3 billion devices transacting in the economy of things, 3 billion. Um, and when you sort of look at it, you're saying, okay, um, you know, how are those devices going to get financed, right? And why a lot of financial interest, uh, organizations are interested in this is because this is the chance for embedded finance on IoT devices. So it's plain and simple. You can embed payments. You can also embed financing um, into that. So, so going back to that example, you know, why can't um, a car be tokenized, um, you know, or an EV charging station or a set of EV charging stations be tokenized and why can the investors or owners of those tokens not get a proportion of each transaction? Meaning, when the car is rented, they get a proportion which would be distributed by smart contract. Uh, or in the case of EV chargers, where you're looking at 2.5 uh, million EV chargers needing to be rolled out across Europe by 2030. Could be 2025 or 2030, I'm not sure. Uh, but the, you know, significant uh, millions of chargers. You know, th this could be an excellent way to finance them, right? Communities could come together to ensure uh, charges in their areas, um, you know, and, and essentially it gives the finance companies the option to go into business uh, with the other stakeholders um, and essentially get repaid based on usage. 
uh, and, and that is the same sort of principle as the sort of car with its own PL. It could it could work for any devices. And and and, and PairPoint stroke DAB uh, acts as two things. One is a wallet, uh, so 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 it allows the device to pay for things on the owner user's behalf, and the other one is as a point of sale, which which allows um, which allows the device or, or or the owner of the device to sell to uh, the user on behalf of the owner, and and for for in, for, for cars, that's that, that's especially interesting as they go towards sort of these in-car payments and trying to sell Spotify and trying to spell, sell subscriptions, etc. That it works both ways. Yeah, fascinating, isn't it? I think as well, it could be a way for like if we're all worried about where's our income going to come from in a few years' time when AI, uh, whether you know, takes or removes a lot of the jobs, where it's going to come from something like universal basic income. It could even come from. Uh, partial car ownership that we all have a, a stake in a, in a car that's kind of autonomous and self-driving. So it's definitely going to be a, a fascinating uh, journey up to 2030, like you said. Um, David, you unpacked quite a few things there. Um, it may be worth just kind of restating the kind of key enablers that you see for the economy of things. We talked a little bit about wallets, um, identities as well. What are some of the other things that, that you think are going to be uh, key as we as we move towards this economy of things? Um, so, so, so I think uh, the economy of things identity, as, as we've been through, is is a key enabler. Wallets is a yeah is obviously the interface there. Um, the other thing is uh, root of trust at the edge. Uh, so, so there is a yeah, an edge component to this. So, so. Uh, you know, you have connectivity of these devices, which is important. Uh, but the other side is root of trust at the edge or cryptography. Um, and, and part of what we do at PayPoint is we work, um, you know, with the SIM card initiative, although we will move to other forms of connectivity as well. But we work with the SIM card and, and there is a bridge between the SIM card, a cryptographic bridge between the SIM card and the platform, which, which has a, a blockchain layer to it, layer one. Uh, and there is also a cryptographic signing. Um, so, so there's two types of technologies that we want to get technical that, that are underpinning that. Uh, one uh, is, is IoT safe, essentially where uh, you can use a secure element uh, in the SIM card and an applet in the SIM card that can produce multiple private, private, private public key pairs. Bottom line is that you can use um, you can use that to sign online. So you can use that to sign on chain. On the device can sign on chain. Using that, and the other proprietary uh, technology to PayPoint and uh, Vodafone is something called SimTrust, which is a generic bootstrap architecture, uh, which allows you uh, certainly for older devices to bootstrap uh, cryptography. But what what that means in simple language is that you can trust what's happening on the edge. So where you talk about um, paper use, so so, so you know, EV chargers that are tokenized, and uh, you know the token holders are getting paid back for each transaction. You need to verify each transaction. You need to know the device hasn't changed, that the SIM hasn't swapped, that it hasn't moved. And that root of trust at the edge provides that. It signs the payload. Uh, it, it provides certainty there. And, and I think that's important when you get into these in-car payment use cases, these supply chain use cases, and other use cases that you have that root of trust at the edge to trust the data, to trust the service, to trust uh, the device. Yeah, and cryptography brings a lot of that to the table as well. And, and so, and so that's the tech, the technology layer that PairPoint provides. Um, what other things do, do you provide in terms of working with, um, you know, companies in the space? I mean, obviously, there's you're kind of ge generating um, kind of markets there and working with customers. Um, can you talk a little bit about what other things you do besides technology or helping with architecture and things like that as you work with businesses trying to embrace this? 
Yeah, I mean, the technologies are enablers. I mean, some of the, the use cases we're looking at is uh, we have a, a live EV charging solution. Um, so this is helping fleets and uh, automotive manufacturers to uh, access an ecosystem of charging to be able to, um, to, to have smart contracts that allow them to bundle charging into their monthly subscriptions um, to um, also interact with uh, smart grids so that you can have clean energy certificates or certificates showing where the energy is coming from, ESG reportings, expense management. Uh, so, so that's one of the use cases. The other one, as I've uh, sort of hinted at before, is in-car payments. So using this to help um, automotive manufacturers to have uh, a more streamlined experience with, uh, with users uh, you know, where they can essentially enable users to use the car to pay for goods and services. Uh, but also, more importantly, they can have a relationship with that customer um, you know, and, and uh, also uh, sell them goods and services uh, through the car. Uh, so that's one. The other, other things are supply chains. So, so this is uh, supply chain and logistics, so helping to streamline and automate the documentation uh, based on uh, IoT data, uh, smart contracts and location. Um, and also uh, to, to then look at trade finance and, and um, how the data can reduce risk and automate payments and change the way payments are made. So those, those are some of the ones that we're starting with. I, I think some of the use cases that we'll use, the economy of things enablers and the, yeah, uh, that we have uh, are probably not even thought of yet. Uh, we're, we're expecting a lot of uh, ideation from partners and other users of the platform going forwards. Uh, but but those, uh, th those are opportunistic um, use cases and business problems that we're helping to solve uh, because Vodafone, I think, have four, four, 40 million SIMs in cars um, at the moment. So there's a big footprint there. Um, and I think 70% of the data trans transmitted in European cars are over the Vodafone network. And wow. uh, in supply chain logistics, also another uh, big footprint. So these are areas which are opportunistic uh, in, in terms of uh, solving business problems. Uh, but but also growth ones. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, as I said, uh, the in-car payments market is, is forecast to be uh, 500 up to 500 billion by 2030, and um, the, uh, the the supply chain logistics market is huge as well. And we know what the EV charging is a big transformational uh, uh, you know, thing for the automotive automotive industry. So I think that's why we're there. But we're expecting to move into other areas, healthcare, and other areas going forward. Thanks for that. And then one of the other areas that, that you talk about is is also the metaverse, which almost feels like a swear word these days. It's like <laughs> everyone was talking about it a few years ago or even a year ago, and now it's kind of a little bit quieter. Um, and I want to get into the metaverse stuff a little bit, David. Um, but before I do, people talk about the kind of death of the metaverse. Do you think that's over-exaggerated? And if so, why? Absolutely. Um, I, I, I think we've got to remember where we were um, and, and what, what was happening at the time when you know, the metaverse hit the hype cycle. It comes on the back of uh, you know, billions of people being locked down because we had a pandemic, uh, not able to do things that we would normally, normally do, travel, go to concerts, socialize, uh, shop in the way we did. So there was a lot of emphasis um, at the time in how can you do things that, uh, you know, that, that you can't do physically, right? You know, so can you go to a concert in the metaverse? Can you socialize? Can you go to work? Um, so, so that's why I, I think that had something to do with the buzz. Um, obviously, uh, you know, there was a, a conception and maybe a demand at the time that we'd have a big bang metaverse where, you know, we'd have this all encompassing joined up metaverse where you'd have persistence across everyone and 
I, I think that was just a, a hangover from, from from the pandemic and where we were. I think the more realistic picture uh, and I think to ask ourselves is, okay, does immersiveness and 3D and AR, VR add value in some cases? I think the answer is yes. You know, in the industrial metaverse, we've seen digital twins, uh, digital factories, et cetera, where, where real value is being added and that's growing. Uh, I think um, if you think about social media, virtual workplaces and collaborations, uh, education, um, you know, these sort of areas, you know, there's, there's a lot of areas where the metaverse embedded uh, to other platforms adds value. So I think the first phase of the metaverse is the embedded metaverse. And this is where you have AR, VR, immersive technology in, embedded in other platforms. And then I believe there'll be some interoperability. And then I think in the long term, you may see some convergence. Um, but but uh, you know, the metaverse isn't dead. It's just evolving uh, differently from what we expected. And these things always do. I don't. I wonder if anyone ever, because AI kind of went on a potentially is going to go on a similar journey where everyone's talking about it, and you had you know people looking at films like The Lawnmower Man. If you're old enough to remember that film, <laughs> and uh, then everyone's disappointed that AI didn't arrive the next day. And of course, you know, over the course of the last year, it's all anyone can talk about. So maybe we'll see the same journey for the metaverse as well. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I think it will come back. Um, I think it is coming back, but it, it's going to be on a value added basis. Right. And uh, and uh, as I said, it will be the embedded metaverse, then the interoperable metaverse, and then you'll have the converged metaverse going forwards. But but my, my thinking on the metaverse is slightly different uh, because, I, you know, you talk about the metaverse and you see someone with a VR headset. And actually, that is only one feature of the metaverse. You know, the metaverse, you know, and we tend to think about it from our own personal point of view where we have choice so i can actually fly to the alps and i can go skiing you know i can go for a run not that i'd be that fast but i can go for a run you know, <laughs> things i could do but there's actually people who can't do that right so there's people who can't travel because of visa restrictions or disabilities um you know who, who couldn't attend harvard university right or another or oxford university um the metaverse can remove geography you know, it can remove geography and it could make it possible for someone in a developing country who can't afford, who or, or don't have the visa, or, or just can't, or are disabled, who can't travel to actually have that education, right? So that's where you see a value added, and, and you know it could make someone who's disabled uh, run again. It could, you know, it could make someone who's old uh, do something that they could only do if they were young. So, they, so there are features of the metaverse which will add value, uh, and and I don't think it's going anywhere when when you consider those things. But also, um, you know, the metaverse. When, when you think about it, it's more than VR. It's, it, in my view, it's a new digital operating system for a new digital world. And uh, I believe when you look at the Apple Pro demonstration, it was very powerful um, in, in that it showed that the metaverse and that space, it, that interactive space it creates will be the new web browser. It's going to be the new interaction point between people and content. And that is going to be very powerful. We don't know how it will develop. Um, but but if it if it's the new web browser and the new interaction point, it's going to be pretty important and grow pretty fast. It's interesting. One of the challenges, Doc, is a, a decentralized company in that we all basically work from from separate locations. And one of the challenges that both Doc and any company operating in that decentralized way is collaborating and having like you know uh, immersive discussions and meetings and potentially obviously um, um, metaverse could be in something as boring as uh, video conferencing, it could really make a big difference there as well. So maybe that's something that we'll see come through. You spoke a little bit on LinkedIn. So 
kind of building into the metaverse uh, topic a little bit more, David, uh, and you did write this a little while ago, um, but you, you talked about the mobile phone and digital telecommunications being the middleware of the metaverse. Do you still believe that to be the case? And maybe you could unpack that phrase a little bit for us. Actually, yeah, I remember writing that and I remember being very excited about it. Um, I do. Uh, so so, so I, I was talking at, uh, about digital identity just yesterday, actually. And uh, and one of the things you, you discussed with it is adoption. It, you know, could digital identity or Web3 decentralized digital identity, your verifiable credentials and issued credentials, um, you know, be be a killer application. Of course, it could. It could be. It could be. It could change the way I apply for a mortgage, the way I travel, the way I rent a car, the way I get into the building. Uh, you move it, removing paper credentials and replacing them with digital ones that can be verified. I mean, that could be really transform transformative for people and our everyday lives. But 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 the the reality is that we've got very little adoption. I was, I was listening this morning that Peru. You know, have a digital credential for travel with the passport and you can go there having a digital passport or credential and you don't have to show your physical documentation. But that is only a small, um, a small thing. And when, when you look at it, um, you know, there, there are, are much bigger, um, bigger adoptions needed for this to take off. So then you look at, OK, you know, with AI moving at pace, uh, with Web3 moving at pace, with cloud moving at pace, with the metaverse uh, moving as well. And you're saying, okay, with all of these things moving, the digital world exploding, um, you know, what is the one thing uh, that, that that could actually be an identifier that you could use now, that the majority of the population have, uh, that could essentially uh, is good to go, could could be used and could trace back to a jurisdiction, a person, an organization, and and give you recourse to legal systems, uh, etc. And that is the phone number. And I believe that the phone number. There's 8 billion people who will have a mobile phone uh, by 2030. And um, I, yeah, there, there could be even more phones and numbers in, in operation. So uh, I think it's a proven technology um, and, and, and it could and, and it scales. And there's systems behind it for roaming and KYC and, and security. And, and it just seems that it could be the middleware that uh, not only allows you to roam across um, uh, different metaverse different metaverse environments with, you know, in a regulatory way that's policed and governed and, and traces back, but also this link between the physical and the virtual world. My, my, my definition of the metaverse is that it's a virtual world that sits alongside the real world, right? And I think that's what we realize. Yeah, we're not going to leave the real world very, very, very quickly. You know, we quite enjoy it. I quite enjoy going to conferences. I like going to uh, concerts and I like traveling, but I also... Uh, given time and, and travel constraints, you know, would like to do more online. So I think they'll coexist. And then you have the problem is how can I take an identity from the physical world and make it work in the re re uh, physical world where, where I have that hybrid. So I'm communicating with you, Nick. You're in a virtual environment. I'm in the office here. Um, you know, what 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 could be the middleware and and the common denominator of identity that could do that? And I think the phone number is capable of that. So I, I think that. You know, making a call in the metaverse could involve, you know, metaverse to metaverse communication. Phone number would work. More importantly, it could involve a a physical to to uh, metaverse uh, communication, in which case the phone number could also work. So I think it's, I, I think it's one of the successes over the last 20, 25 years. Uh, the phone, well, 30 years. Uh, I think the progress is now 95 percent of the population in terms of uh, penetration. Um, 
and is already working with things like digital wallets. Digital wallets, another thing where we've got scale. Um, I think there's 5.6 billion digital wallets uh, expected by 2030. So 65% of the population. But the but the the phone number is already working with that. It's already working with the internet. It's already working with fintech systems. So I I think it could be an important tool in the transition and the coexistence of digital and physical. Yeah, really interesting. And like you say, that number 2030 keeps coming up. So yeah, it's, it's the year to be alive for sure. <laughs> and David, you could have, and linked into this, like you can have also wrote about having a, a metaverse decentralized digital ID linked to a phone number, which kind of sounds very powerful as well. So that another linkage between um, virtual and real world. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that for me, please? No, yeah, I, I mean, it's the same. It's just saying that the digital identity um, you know, is linked to the communication, uh, linked to a, a person, a business, or an organization. Um, and, uh, you know, it's the identifier because it does trace back to a person, a business, a jurisdiction. Um, whereas, you know, I can create a password. And, and in a lot of these gaming environments or social media environments, the, there's no KYC. You know, there's no real uh, strict rigidity on, on me, you know, being the age I say I am or being in the location I say I am. And that's fine, right? You know, maybe, maybe you know, not, not everyone needs to know, uh, you know, those, those, those details. But if something happens, right, if I'm entering a contract that's legal, then, you know, there's some cases if you're doing certain things, you need to be over 18, for example, or you need to be in a certain jurisdiction. Um, so, so, so the phone number would provide all of those information, um, all of those informations where uh, the owner of the phone number is KYC'd, um, and, uh, and then it provides the foundation for financial activity and for other activity where it can abide by the law. I think the, the key thing here is that if you look at Web3 and you look at the metaverse, these technologies are moving at pace. Maybe the metaverse has slowed down, but they're moving at pace. And I think the innovation is outstripping the regulation and the governance. We're seeing that with AI as well. However, um, the bottom line is that, you know, the legal system we have has taken centuries to develop may not be perfect, but it's taken centuries to develop. So the reality is that if these technologies are to take off and economic activity is to uh, increase there to any significant level, it needs to work within the legal system we have, right? So you need to have recourse to legal uh, credentials, you need to have jurisdiction, you need to have contracting, you need to have uh, protection of copyrights and trademarks. And, and if something happens, there needs to be a recourse. There needs to be something you can do. And if the phone number can link to KYC, it can link to a person, jurisdiction, and a legal system, then that, that seems to me to be the middleware um, between you know, these, the, the, these new technologies, these new platforms, and having a recourse to a legal system that is not going to be replaced anytime soon. And the great thing, of course, about mobile phones is the verification aspect's already done. So like an example that you gave, yeah, you're not having to go and create something new again, which would require potentially IDVs, identity verification providers to get involved and go through that process, which would undoubtedly see, you know, that process be unsuccessful for some and maybe you'd see kind of people dropping out. But if you've already got that verification done through phones, it makes it much more streamlined as well. Um, we talked about a lot of different things, David. Um, going, going back to more um, self-sovereign or, or decentralized identity, I'll use those two phrases interchangeably, and verifiable credentials. Like what what do you see outside of what you've already talked about that you see as the most compelling use cases to this technology? I think we, we talked before and I was getting the impression some people believe it's a kind of solution looking for a problem 
and in some respects, like the, the adoption that we've seen so far is is we expect to to grow significantly, but it hasn't been there um, in certainly a mass adoption way right now. But what what are the use cases that really excite you beyond what you've already mentioned? Uh, I think single sign-on. Uh, on steroids, uh, so, so so the ability. I mean, for myself, and it could be because I'm getting old, but I, I honestly struggle uh, to keep up with the passwords on different uh, different systems and different platforms, especially where you change your phone, right? And there's some passwords that don't carry across, and then you're looking for a password that you had two three years ago. It can be really difficult. But having a common identifier, a common password, a common credential. Um, that can allow you to seamlessly and securely uh, move across different platforms, uh, I think would be, it's very exciting and something that helps with the user experience, the customer business, uh, consumer business experience, Um, and and could save, uh, bring in massive efficiencies, bring massive adoption and and streamline things. I think the other other side of it is, um, what excites me is, is moving, and this is where you include Web3. Right. So when you include Web3 in that, you can essentially have the potential to move from a trustless world. You know, when you when we get up in the morning and we and we start our journey, we may go to the station. You know, we've got to we've got to show a travel credential, right? Or if we don't have a travel travel credential, and we and we travel on the trains, we show a payment credential, which shows that we we have a credential that will allow us to pay for the travel. Then we get up, so then we get on the train, we get off, we go to WAG, we've got to show our pass. Right, or if we buy a coffee on the way, we've got to show another payment credential to show that we can buy the coffee. Um, you know, we we have to show a credential to get into the building. Uh, you know, going home, we may want to stop off for a drink. You know, we may need to show an age credential there to show that we can have something over eighteen. It just goes on, right? So why is that? Because we don't trust each other, right? If, if we all trusted each other, then you wouldn't need any of those systems. But the resources and the friction that comes from a trustless world is uh, absolutely massive. It's bad for the planet, it's bad for resources, but but blockchain and self-sovereign identity and verifiable credentials and zero knowledge proofs as the beginning enablers essentially could allow you, if you look at that journey, to walk past the barrier because I've already preloaded, you know, you could see my location and the barrier's location up here. You know, they, they, could, they could automatically check that I've got a credential to pay for it. So I walk through that, I get into the uh, building, you know, they, they, my work credential is automatically checked as I go in there. So I walk in there, I buy a coffee, I can just pick it up and go because my location again and is paired with the with the coffee location and uh, they can see that my hand or whatever has taken the coffee out of the store. Uh, and you could just see that you could move to a friction-free world uh, where you have uh, decentralized identity and the blockchain providing the trust for this friction, um, for this removal of friction. Whereas at the moment we have friction because there's no trust. So we take the, everything is geared towards the, the, the protection, right? And, 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 and the, the sort of risk of us uh, approach, which is what it needs to be now. We've also got a combination of paper, Victorian type proofs and, uh, and the digital world where, you know, I'll take a paper pass. What does that mean? Right, or I'm gonna I'm gonna sign something. What the what what does that mean? You know, everything is digital. We know that all of the infrastructure is digital. Why have these physical steps? It means nothing, right? Uh, so so can we then you know does decentralized digital identity um, you know and uh, you know allow us to have a a digital identity infrastructure for the new digital world and the new digital citizen? I think it does, and that that is exciting.
and one of the key parts of of like how an example that you gave david where you're going to the station in the morning and you'd have um i don't know your train ticket you'd maybe have a way to pay for a drink or a coffee um or you'd maybe have an identity to show as well to prove you're over 18 um, most people believe that this will be in a wallet uh, of some sort that will be uh, ideally probably on your mobile device um but also there's web wallets because there sometimes can be usability concerns that particularly companies might have around making sure that uh, one of their users has another app, yet another app that they need to download and use. Um, so, so some um, larger companies prefer uh, kind of web wallets or cloud-based wallets. Where do you sit in that debate? Do you think there's a clear answer or do you think it's use case uh, dependent? Yeah, I think I think it's it's use case dependent um, and and linked to the risk levels. Yeah, we are moving towards a, a world of wallets. Yeah, why why has the the sort of uh, I won't name the companies, but the the company name Pay <laughs> uh, with Pay at the end. Why have they taken off? Because of convenience, right? And because of convenience, but underlying that is some security in terms of hardware secure modules and and, and other things that allow the risk level to be reduced. Uh, so that you can have that increased um, convenience. Now, in terms of web-based wallets, app-based wallets, hardware wallets, I think what's clear is that we're moving towards a world of wallets and um, those wallets will have our identity and they'll have different credentials and they will be our interface, I believe, between uh, you know between us and, and the world of fintech and, and Web3 finance. Um, but the jury's out on what, what form that takes. You know, some of the world I was describing um, you know, is a world where you, you don't even need a wallet, right? You just need to show up somewhere. Uh, you just need to have the ability uh, for your uh, credential, your identity to be, um, you know, to, to, to be verified. And that could be just on the phone um, and, and just, just maybe your SIM card, for example. And, and you just need location pairing, right? You know, the idea of going into a store, picking something up and going out, could just be based on the fact that the store and this contents are geofenced, and uh, where where my location and that goods location are paired, like for example a car, and and and, and is paired beyond a certain perimeter, we, we we can deduce that I've 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 taken the car, in which case I'm automatically charged if they have a payment credential. Um, so so th- th- this is a new dynamic where you know it's not a a sort of um, proactive uh, you know user app. Uh, in terms of a wallet with some with a hardware secure module and a key, is actually where you become the wallet yourself. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, interesting how it could evolve, but but that, that you could see how that could take off. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and yeah, certainly the more convenient, uh, the more likely it is to be mass adopted as well. Um, I'm respectful of your time, David. Uh, so I'm going to move into the final question now. Um, and you've probably covered some of this already, so so apologies for that. But I think there might be maybe some new insights that might come out of it. Um, you wrote the season of blockchain growth is all about convergence. Um, could you tell us about how blockchain is converging um, with the industries that you've mentioned, specifically kind of fintech, uh, AI, IoT, etc.? So I did write that actually. I remember. Uh, uh, yeah, no, no. So, so, so there's two types of convergence. So I, I think what we've seen in the blockchain world is a convergence at layer one, and some interoperability at layer two, which is, you know, more pitching layer ones at infrastructure. I think we spoke too too much about you know this blockchain consensus protocol, 
you know, another blockchain consensus protocol. This blockchain has this number of transactions per second. Nobody cares. The bottom line. No, people. Sorry, people in Web three care, but the people using uh, applications, they, they don't care. What they want to know is that it's trusted, and and that it will support um, the user experience that they want. Um, so, so, so that that conversion, I think, is useful. And we've seen a lot of developments there. So you can have public blockchains, public permission blockchains, etc., which is getting it nearer uh, to, to to being usable by enterprises and financial institutions. Uh, the other barrier for use was the gas fees. Gas fees, in some ways, were a barrier to entry uh, to enterprises taking Web3 and using public blockchains because of the unpredictability of the cost, but also things like sanctions. Right? Who's going to get the money? How do I ensure that I'm not paying for gas and that some undesirable bad actor is going to get the money now you see now you get into what i call the convergence where you're seeing a lot of big financial players big banks and and, and financial companies entering the space they've been there for a long while but you're now starting to see the evidence of what they're doing and you're seeing things like visa come up with um you know account abstract or using account abstraction smart contracts to abstract away gas, gas fees massive thing because that actually means that you can do business with visa and you don't have the risk of the uh, of the gas fees breaching sanctions or or something like that so that, that that's absolutely massive you're seeing tokenized deposits by companies like mastercard uh you know doing tokenized deposits which are capabilities to use uh, to tokenize your bank bank deposit and and and, uh, and put that into stable coins or or retail um or other types of tokens uh, and you're seeing, uh, you know, JP Morgan having programmable payments using the JP Morgan coin, etc. So what you're seeing in terms of convergence is number one convergence between Web3 and the financial fintech world, which I think is really important because Web3 is not going to replace the financial fintech world, but it does have a lot of capabilities which can augment and enhance the financial fintech world. So I think that's that, that's an important thing seeing that come through, and that will drive adoption. If you look at the last thing, I think there was. Roughly three, just over 320, 330 million crypto wallets. Uh, you know, there's 5.6 billion uh, IoT wallets uh, 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 by 2025. Uh, I've just got to plug my power in. I'm losing power on. on sure, this. no worries. Uh, uh, yeah, so 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 I'll finish. Um, so 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 um, so so I think that's really important um, that you have the convergence of Web3, the convergence of Web3 and fintech, and uh, we also have. Um, the, the convergence uh, with the wider world, uh, convergence of platforms, etc. David, thanks for that answer. That's been really, really insightful. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to mention to our listeners before you go today? Anything that you're work on, working on that you thought would be relevant? Uh, no, I, just, uh, just, just saying that yeah, I am working on a book called The uh, Business of the Metaverse. I could put the link in your podcast. Uh, so, so it'd be great for for people to to be involved uh, to 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 read that. A lot of what I'm talking about has come from that that soul searching exercise of writing a book, uh, and also um, you know really excited about what we're doing at PeerPoint um, and uh, you know some of the the use cases you'll start to see in in-car payments, EV charging, supply chain. Uh, we look out for the headlines in uh, 2024. Uh, we believe that we will build the biggest ecosystem of economic uh, agents or devices uh, which are economic agents in the world. Um, and and uh, you know, we want to bring telco to Web3. We want to bring telco to, uh, to Metaverse. We want to bring telcos to AI. And we believe that um, you know, augmenting the SIM card and, and using that as a bridge into these worlds 
is the way forwards and we started with these use cases and we're, we've got big ambitions to grow. So thank you. No, our pleasure. David Palmer, thanks for coming on Identity3. Thank you.